0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hi, I'm Elizabeth Ferry. Welcome to another rebroadcast from the RTB Archives. From Brandeis University and also our domestic spaces, welcome to Recall This Book. Today, it's my great pleasure to invite a guest, Sean Hill. Welcome, Sean. And co-host, Liz Bradfield from Brandeis University. Uh, And we're going to be having a conversation about Sean's poetry and related pathways and channels. First, I'd like to introduce Elizabeth Bradfield, our distinguished co-host for today. Liz is the author of several books of poetry, including her most recent book, Theorem, in collaboration with the artist Antonio Contro. She's the founder and editor-in-chief of Broadsided Press, a monthly broadside publisher, and she teaches poetry at Brandeis. So just to introduce Sean to you, um, he's the author of two poetry collections, Dangerous Goods, which was awarded the Minnesota Book Award in Poetry from 2014, and Blood Ties and Brown Liquor, named one of the 10 books all Georgians should read in 2015. I presume that's the state of Georgia, not the nation, although I'm sure the people in the nation of Georgia should also read it. He's received numerous awards, including fellowships from Cave Canem, the Region 2 Arts Council, Minnesota State Arts Board, Jerome Foundation, and many other honors. He's served as the director of the Minnesota Northwoods Writers' Conference at Bemidji State University, uh, and he's also a consulting editor at broad Press, a monthly broadside publisher. So we thought it would be great, Sean, if we might start off by having you read a poem.
0: Okay, I would love to. Um... I was kind of torn between which poems to read. The couple picked out. I oh, want am going to read a new poem, one that's not in a book yet, but hopefully will be soon. Um, the title is Musica Universalis in Fairbanks. Musica Universalis in Fairbanks. Each night this 21st century frontier town settles enough for me to hear the thumb and hiss in my ears. My tinnitus, which I choose to think of as the harmony of my firmament, all so far away, like the whoosh and hiss of from Nana's gas heater that warmed the winter-chilled bedroom in Georgia while she got the skillet sizzling with country cured ham in the kitchen. My refrigerator occasionally wakes this hour to clear its throat and rumble on over the sounds in my ears. And some nights I get out of bed to go stand under the generosity of stars here. I've decided that must be the collective noun for all the stars in one's gaze, as it must also be for any number of scars. The way we refer to a flock of starlings as a murmuration, I stand there and use my hand to shade my eyes from the streetlights to better see the stars. Our new light competes with the old, the way the clamour of fleets in the age after sails is said to interfere with the sounds of whales. Here I sometimes see the aurora borealis, silent which seems impossible, like the end of the world, for what we know of light in the sky. Lightning, and its often not far off companion thunder, seems to say something will always follow. Some say the northern lights sizzle, an impossibility, a synesthetic weaving of the senses exalting this light, or a lark like the bird, which we call an exaltation when in numbers great or small. More than a handful, the way a friend used to count lovers when we were younger, told me he was on to the second hand. Love, while a lark, still handled carefully in those days. I should drive out of town to view these lights against the sky, black as a raven. They often fly in pairs or groups, a conspiracy, a storytelling, an unkindness of ravens.
2: It's so great to hear a new poem from you, Sean. And, and I I don't know what I always love about your poems is the way, the way that they, uh, interweave in conversation with themselves, the way that they evolve, (laughs) the way that they morph from one thing into another uh, and reconnect and offer these surprising juxtapositions. Um, The way, for example, we went from the lark to the hand um, to the raven. I just, yeah, it's such beautiful work. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Yeah. I mean, that's what the language offers. You know, I, I don't know, I, I keep sort of trying to think about how we think about um, ecosystems and the, the planet, um, mm-hmm. and the things, the things that get moved around, and you're, you're sort of taking me away, like, thinking about um, how we think about things, like
2: mm-hmm.
0: the, the, the house sparrow, um, correct me if I'm wrong, Liz, but that is also a non-native species, right?
2: That's right, yeah.
0: Right, and... You know, we don't think about them generally the same way as we think about star- sparrows. At least they don't get sort of broadly in the culture the same kind of bad rap. And actually, right now I have some house sparrows nesting in a birdhouse mm-hmm. on, on our garage. I saw the starlings. Like my wife was like, "Oh, there's a little cute little brown bird out there." I was like, "It's a non-native invasive species," um, <laughs> right. but also like it is a cute little brown bird. Um, and then the starlings were coming around, like trying to peek and see what's happening in there, and it's like this moment of like well how do i think about the starlings in this moment right um mm-hmm. they're just they're trying to get by um and again i, I i'm kind of curious like i don't have a poem about the house sparrow, but i'm like that feels like a space to like think about like how we um think about other and othering each other right mm-hmm. um so
2: and, and i think this is in your poems too but and of movement and who gets to move and what's the impetus to move. Um, you know, in some, in some cases of animals shifting ranges, uh, it's not through the deliberate introduction of something like it was with the starlings. Uh, sometimes it's range expansion in relation to climate change. So right. that's kind of tied to us. I don't know. It's, right. yeah, that idea of migration shifting patterns right. where where it's natural big air quotes and where and where it's unnatural and then in your work how much that ties to human movements as well which is
0: super important to me yeah you like you're there's the eruption of of pine siskins like this year right um and we get those things that happen every now and again and what does that have to do with like our action like climate change that we we have had some hand in right um yeah those those are are questions i i i worry not necessarily on the page but they're in my head like a lot of the time Mm -hmm. Um, and yeah who gets to move i
2: mean can you talk a little bit about that dear america letter
0: yeah um i i was was asked to take part of this epistolary project right like Write a letter to America. I was like, I don't know what I'm gonna do. And it actually, it came out of them like, oh, we love, we really like these postcard poems. Can you write something like that? And I I, I was like, maybe. Let me see. And and no, I couldn't. I, I think I had too <laughs> much t- space that I needed to fill, and they, like I, it was too big. Like writing a postcard to America didn't seem doable to me in the time. And um, I had this trip coming up with my dad, and so it, I I felt like that was. It gave me the opportunity to think, and, and I was sort of taking notes about our travel. In um, travel, for me, it does it gives me perspective to sort of reflect and sort of pull back and sort of see where where I am um, in like physical space, but also in political space. Um, so, the the essay is is about you know driving like four days across Canada with my dad, which was oh, a once in a lifetime trip. I don't know that we've ever spent four days together, just the two of us. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, in our lives before that. Um and I've always had problems with border crossings. <laughs> and then and just like then also when you talk about having problems with border crossings, you have to think about what a border is. Mm-hmm. Um and just sort of the physically be on like stand on the border and straddle the straddle the these you know the line that bisects that you know demarcates the nations um it just made me think about like what is it that is um being kept on either side of the line um and also it just like I, I writing an, an essay that's a travel log i got to like you know Focus on nature and scenery and those things. Um, so it just—it was really kind of a cool project that felt like, you know, I I could get at these, you know, ways in which um, our lives are are bounded. And I think there like there were these moments in it with my father who was born and raised in, in Milledgeville, Georgia, and spent much of his life there. Um, sort of getting him. As far away from Millersville as I think he'd ever been, um, and taking this slow trip with me, um, like allowed him to see some things and allowed me to see some things about him. And you know, was ask you know, we in the car for four days and had to sort of ask questions about like how his life had been um, bounded. Um, he was born in the '40s, late '40s, and so. Like he grew up with Jim Crow. And so I, I, I wanted to ask about that, but I didn't want to ask too directly about that. So I just, I, I asked this question about um, what was the big change in your life, that your lifetime that, that you know, right. this sort of societal shift, this thing had happened. And, um, and there are lots of them. And so he's like, you know, cell phone, radio, communication. <laughs> I don't know what to do with that, dad. Like
1: <laughs>
0: there, there was a period when like, you were not an equal citizen and then you, you are. And he's like, oh yeah, that, that, happened too. Hmm. Um, And so like sort of thinking about ways in which we sort of normalize things, internalize things and how we do view our lives was kind of interesting for me. Um, Yeah.
1: I just, there's, there's something that I thought was really intriguing about that essay because it sort of had the form of a, you know, a certain kind of genre, right? right? Of this sort of travel narrative and reflection, but it was doubled because it was you and your father and there are the, all these moments in it. And that was one of them that you just described where sort of your expectation of what he's gonna say is kind of confounded um, and then kind of doubles back and you sort of, you know, have more conversation about it. But but there's all these moments like the scene in the motel where, I mean, I'm describing it as a scene because it has a sort of cinematic quality, but, um, where your responses and his responses are kind of set side by side and that he, but not necessarily always in the same way that certain things that feel like threats to him, don't to you and then do. And that also seemed really important about to put in a letter about America, right? Uh, from outside of America. And I, I just thought that was really fascinating.
0: Thank you. Yeah. No. I mean, that's part of the, the the work too. I'm I'm thinking about ways in which our lives are bounded by our lifetimes and and you know the our the our context, right? Like, you know, my south is different from his south. My experience was different, yeah. and part of that had to do with like how they raised me. Um, mm-hmm. You know, I, I think. I was listening to, I listen to too, too much radio sometimes. I was listening to a show and they were talking about sort of the immigrant experience and the first generation, second generation, and how like parents are trying to shape the, the life of the child, like what they tell the child and what they don't. And like my parents didn't really talk too directly about um, segregation. I think mm-hmm. they didn't really want to like, I think, burden me maybe with that. And mm-hmm. so I grew up in a recently desegregated South, not really understanding how it had affected them, right? Mm-hmm. And in a, in a direct way, I mean, I could see it on the, like the edges of it and like the way that they were around white people and how they observed me with white people um, and what they sort of like expected to happen and how they were like encouraging of like, oh, we go talk to these people. Um, but yeah, it's, yeah, it's, it's that fascinates me and also because now i have a son i'm like thinking about like how his world his you know america is going to be different from my america i don't know exactly how mm-hmm. but it i mean it, it will probably be it has to be it can't be you know that's the generational bounding of our lives right right um so yeah those those things sort of sort of Fastly. I mean, the and that's part of the essay too that I don't really sort of get at too much but it's it's there I think there's like a follow-up essay actually they're working okay. on that sort of touches yeah. on those things but like yeah like right. how do we
1: let's but it's yeah it seems like it's in there and it's sort of not only that your past and his past are different but that that makes your presence different too right Right, you're on two different trips, right? Because of that, even though you're also on the
0: same trip, right, right, right. And you know, and also, yeah, yeah it's two different trips because of the the past, but also, I guess this is you know, technically speaking, speaking part of the past. But like, you know, I traveled much more than he had. I'd been to Canada. Right. Um, mm-hmm. I actually I took them, my dad and my mom, to Canada once lived up in northern minnesota and my mom's like i want to go to canada and so they came up to her visit and we went across the border and, and like spent the night in, in winnipeg and i think it was interesting and strange they had indian food for the first time in their lives mm-hmm. the last time um <laughs> and as soon as we got back across the border my dad we stopped at a cafe um as they say in minnesota cafe and um my dad was like trying to order southern food I was like they don't like there was a waitress. it was her first day on the job and and she she was like, I don't understand sweet tea. I don't know what you're talking about like this is <laughs> like way northern Minnesota and she's just like, i what is what do you, she had to call the manager over to sort of I'm like, oh my god <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah,
2: um, moments with one's parents <laughs> yeah. I wanted to ask you about influence in your work or other books and writers that have shaped you uh, in the ways that you've approached some of these um, poems that we've talked about today or that feel like they're a current kind of feeding your practice. Um,
0: Yeah. Who would they be? Um, There's this book by C.S. Giscombe. titled Into and Out of Dislocation. Giscombe's known as a poet, but this is kind of a memoir, uh, book of prose, um, also travel log too. And I, I got this book right before I moved to Northern Minnesota and there's just like some of the parallels um, and ways of thinking that he was doing in this book influenced dangerous goods. Um, you know, like. One of the sort of things is just like he was into riding his bicycle and he had these rules for riding his bike and so i was like i'm gonna ride my bike i need to ride my bike i need to get out and so it's like it got me out got me out of nature and like you know on these trails um but he was in that book he was looking for um a possible ancestor um, so he talks about sort of his growing up um growing up african-american um also losing an arm at a young age to an accident, um, there's all these things that are happening. But at some point, he's like, you know, he's as an adult, as a writer, um, thinking about, um, you know, a project. He comes, he finds this guy John Giskum, who was a Jamaican um, pioneer in B.C. So a Jamaican in British Columbia who, mm-hmm. like, it's like, you know making making a name for himself, and there's the like their landmark's name for this guy. And he's like, maybe this is an ancestor
2: I, I know him. I know Giskum because of Giscom Road, the the book of poems he wrote about this investigation. And now I'm super curious to read the prose as a follow up and what kind of um, how that refracts the poetry
0: yeah, no, i, I yeah, and you 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 will love it, I think. Um, yeah, and so him thinking about Giscom, John Giscombe, it you know, sort of got me in the mind of thinking about um, the people that come before, right? I think there's a way in which um, I do that work sort of in a community in Blood Ties and Brown Liquor. And I think about family and, and, and try to do that, some of that work. But um, moving to Bemidji, Minnesota, I was like, who's who was here before me and you know, I was just kind of I think I was thinking actually just musing about it without thinking about it too hard the time and just kind of happenstance came across mention um in a flyer of, of a lecture about this guy named George Bonga, who was an Afro-Ojibway voyager hmm. so, like that's like three things right there right um or, or one thing right um and I was really excited about him and I couldn't wait the two weeks for the lecture. So I, I went to the Historical Society in Bemidji, Minnesota and um, was like, I, I need whatever information you guys have on George Bonga." Mm-hmm. They're like, we don't know this guy, but we have a file on this other guy since you're interested in African-Americans, <laughs> you know, in the Bemidji history. And so, yeah, I, that's, they introduced me to this guy, Charles um, W. Scrutchen. Who was a lawyer who moved to Bemidji in 1898, 99? I love that um, stretching poem. <laughs> thank you. And so, yeah, at, at some point for me, it, it, like him looking for her ancestors made me think about like thinking about the ancestors, right? Like made me think that I need to like figure out who was here before me as a way to see how I fit. Um, and it's kind of a comfort too, and I, I feel like now I, that's part of my project is understanding the narrative, because, you know, you know, we talk about representation a lot. Like, oh, you need to see people like you to think about how to, you know, how to be. And I think that's there's truth in that. And so, like, me looking to see, like, okay, these are people who are who are in some way like me, um, who are here. I'm not the first. And I don't, I don't need to be the first, you know, it's actually really good to know that I'm not the 1st lonely to be the first, right? Hmm? A little lonely to be the first. I mean, it's lonely enough being the only, right? Or one of the few. (laughs) But But like to sort of reclaim the, the, the narrative and like, well, we, we were here. um, I think is important. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, And sort of in terms of who represents me and thinking about like, because of the way race is constructed in this country, I, I'm a black man and, and I identify that way. And so I did, when I identify other black people um, who, who've preceded me in a space, in a place, it's it's, it's comforting. It's like, I, I'm like, I I know I can be here.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Um, I don't know if everyone else knows I can be here, but I know I can be here. <laughs> Thanks.
1: Good.
0: So Yeah, and that's kind of the project that I'm working on now is thinking about that.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: I mean, I know your new writing is taking you back to Georgia as well and into history. Um mm-hmm. You want to talk a little bit about that?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um So the Georgia history I'm looking at is actually around the governor's mansion. Um, oh. As a place, but also the administra- administration of uh, Joseph Emerson Brown, who was the governor of Georgia um, right before and during the Civil War. So he was elected and, and came into office in uh, 1858, and just kind of was there through the Civil War. Um, and I'm just I'm interested in in someone governing during that period, and also the fact that. Um, there were black lives that were part of that administration. Um, at the time, the governor's mansion, there were there was no household staff that was like a permanent staff part of the governor's mansion. Um, there wasn't money appropriated for that. Um, the governors brought their slaves with them to serve them and be the servants of the governor's mansion. Um, things came up, you know, life happens. and But I was like, I'm not gonna leave this project because it feels yeah, yeah, more relevant, differently relevant uh, like in this way, which um you know, once Trump was elected, I was like, okay, now we have a different way to think about this. And then January sixth shifted it again because, you know, in in um I guess 2019, I think it was. I was doing more research on this project I was like oh I got to go find these things I need to find so there were some some pieces I really want to dig around and look for and in that digging more things came up and I found um, Governor Brown's letter in which he um, sort of because all of the Confederates had to be pardoned and they had to say make this oath that they want they wouldn't commit treason again and, and like they were traitors and all like the, oh there's paperwork and I like I have like, copies and photographs of the paperwork and I was like okay this is gonna work its way in somehow because it like it felt important and then like you know January 6th happens like I, you know a year and a half later and I'm like okay I, I really need to get this thing out <laughs> um, yeah
2: before
1: uh, more sedition happens
0: right 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 um so yeah, you know th- those those things like like you, these moments you have in the in the in the archives in the library with the research. You're like, oh yes, yes, and then like there's this other energy that is needed to make something of that. And I was like, oh yeah, okay, you know, one of these days, you know. And I was thinking about th- that project and the Civil War is um, also like one sort of step toward my exploration of, um, you know, westward migration, you know? So I'm interested in like, the, we, have, we have a lot about the great migration to the north, but I'm like, I'm, there's people, black folk went west too. And so um, that's another part of the project, um, thinking about black people in the west um, post-Civil War. Um, so yeah. And um, I and I'm in the West, so again, it's like this idea of like trying to figure out like what are the parallels, where's the representation, who were the people, how did they do it,
2: bodies in space and time,
0: bodies in space and time, yeah. yeah. So um, I'm supposed to be writing poems about um, Montana um, history, Black folk in Montana history. That's, mm. that's my next project, but I also have other. Places I want to write about in the West, um, and you know, there's Captain Healy. That's another strand, another thread of the the Westward research. Um, Michael Michael A Healy, Michael Augustine Healy, um, was uh, captain of the Revenue Cutters and um, sort of the federal authority in Alaska. Um, during the last couple of decades of the 19th century. Mm -hmm. But he was born to an Irish immigrant father who was a planter and one of his father's slaves who his father seemed to take as his common law wife. Um, And they had 10 children together, all of which he sent north to to be um, out of slavery. Um, But he was born in 1839, you know, and and not and not too far from where I was born, you know And I was sort of thinking about about that, like, oh, this guy um, was born a, a county over um, had had this trajectory. He ended up in in Alaska and, and being a, um, a famous a famous hero of the time
2: yeah, to that some.
0: Was named after him. <laughs> that was named after him, yeah town's mm-hmm. name like yeah that's how he was introduced to me actually because huh. i i have a question i ask when i go places like what are the where are the books about black people is there a plaque about black people that are here what like tell me about the black people who were here mm-hmm. i'm never like i never walk in thinking i'm, I'm the first black person so i was like right. there has to be somebody mm-hmm. and the woman was like well captain healy was black at the the gift shop at denali mm-hmm. um she's like what do you who she's like you know the town blah blah, blah. i'm like okay for
2: those for people who don't know, Healy is a is the town that's just adjacent to, to Denali National Park. Um it's a very, very small town. It's a um a lot of people work in the park. It's a coal coal mining town mm. also. Um there's a big mm. coal operation there. But um right, right smack dab in the middle of south central Alaska.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah.
2: yeah.
0: And so yeah, I started digging. And I was like, oh, we're like neighbors across centuries, kinda. Like, yeah mm-hmm.
1: so we do have a stage of uh, many episodes where we talk about recallable books so books that that feel connected to the conversation uh, that we've been having and and characteristically for me one has come up in my mind in the course of our conversation so um, maybe I'll just start off and then hear from you guys I'm it um, this whole questions of movements of things that are human and more than human and also the the central north of the country, uh, makes me think of a book by Laureen Niedeker called Lake Superior, mm-hmm. uh, which is the account of a, of a trip that, that she took with her husband um, to Lake Superior. And it's, it's about, a lot of it is about the rocks, which I'm very into rocks. So, mm-hmm. um, but, but, you know, the rocks that also are now the bones of humans, the division between the rocks and the water and the humans is not where we always imagine it to be or, or it, isn't as, it isn't as firm as we imagine it to be. And that's really, um, and, and uh, in a sense, I see that in some of your poems and in our conversation, not, there's not so many rocks, but there's lots of birds and there's also, and stars and, and senses and mountains. And, and so that's, that's where, where that took me. Hmm. Um, so uh Sean, do
0: you wanna tell us a recallable book? Um Invisible City by um Italo Calvino. <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking about him, like we didn't really talk about cities so much, maybe it's part of it. But like in that book, like so um Kublai Khan is being reported to from from Marco Polo about like the empire and different cities, and you sort of you get these like little um dispatches like little like here's what this city is like and they're really kind of very sensory but also kind of abstract it like ends up like I read that book and it makes me think about the city and what cities are in this um in what feels like a useful way you know like that cities are things that aren't just always and just happened or if they do there is also there is some design in them like you know nothing really just happens um and so and and then how you can have some perspective on what is happening in a space like in a in in a community um what what is the community and so like like, i don't don't know like I've, i've had these thoughts when i've gone other places and i think that book kind of helped me think about it like when i um what used to be barrow now um, um barrow alaska now alaska um yeah, i landed there and one of the first things someone told me like in the tour because it's when you land there if someone's picking you up, they're like, you're going to get four tours of this place, at least four tours. Um, and they're like, well, you know, just pointing out places, and it was sort of like an igloo is the word for basically for domicile, so everybody lives in the igloos, whatever they look like. But then I was like thinking about like, why do they look the way they look, right? Like, what is this imposition that um, feels more out of place than what was here before, which seemed like part of dealing with the environment and the ways in which we don't deal with our environments anymore. You know, Um, at some point, we're just like, no, we're just bringing in this colonial sense of what a city should look like and feel like and what the houses should be. I mean, I live in, you know, a really nice sort of big Victorian house, but I don't know why it's in Montana. I like it. Shouldn't necessarily be here though. Um, So yeah, that, that book, makes me think about cities and the things we get up to as a species um, when we get together in I think, interesting ways. Mm, Great. thanks.
2: Uh, Liz? Well, I, I'm a little torn. I've got a couple of books I'm recalling. <laughs> um, I guess the first is the book, Plain Water by Anne Carson, the poet and scholar, but in, in part because it's about movement and journeying. It's about, um, I'm assuming it's uh, autobiographical, semi-autobiographical uh, about her trek along uh, the Camino Real and her conversations over time. And um, as with a lot of her work, it's strange and cerebral and then also um, kind of oddly passionate. And and so when I think about your work, Sean, and the way that that travel is... Also, so full of desire, often uh, and movement can be full of desire, whether it's like a, an intimate, romantic desire or just uh, curiosity and yearning. Um, So I think I think about her book also how it references and reaches to pull in all this different stuff. Um, She's largely using, um, the the haibun form, in in that book, which is a form I know you've used, Sean. In fact. I learned of the form from you, so um, so I'm thinking about that book, and I'm also weirdly was thinking a little bit about the Ice Shirt, that novel. Have you read that, Sean, by William Mm -hmm. Bowman? It's such a weird book. I don't know. I don't know that it's a perfect book. It's strange. It's about um, it's about movement from Europe into. Greenland in particular, and kind of looking at Vikings and encountering uh, Inuit uh, in Greenland and Canada. It's um, it's a strange, troubling royal of a book that gets a little fantastical and surreal. And I don't know why that one's coming to mind. Um, but I think something about encounters and movement and and an openness toward not quite a magical realism, but uh, a strangeness that wants us to step out of ordinary time. Yeah. Great, thank you. Um, Well,
1: I think uh, our time has come uh, to say uh, thank you very much to Sean um, for joining us and for such a great conversation.
2: Yeah, Sean, thank you. You're so generous with your thought and time and I wish we'd gotten to hear more poems, but I'm glad we got one poem from you. Yes,
1: yes. And a a, a new one, too, is very exciting. Thank you. And uh, I am going to tell our listeners about Recall This Book. Recall This Book is the brainchild of John Plotz and Elizabeth Ferry. It is recorded by Plotz, Ferry, and a cadre of other colleagues, including today our co-host, Elizabeth Bradfield, uh, who are located in the Boston area and beyond. Our music comes from a song by Eric Chaslow and Barbara Cassidy called Fly Away. Sound editing is by Naomi Cohen and production assistance including website design and social media is done by Nye Kim. We are grateful to Mark DeLillo for his consultation on tech matters and we appreciate the support of university librarian, Matthew Sheehy and Dean Dorothy Hodgson and of the Mandel Center for the Humanities at Brandeis. We always want to hear from you with your comments, criticisms, or suggestions for future episodes. You can email us directly or contact us via social media and our website. If you enjoyed today's show, please write a review or rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. You may be interested in checking out past episodes, such as Lisa Dillman on translation, or in David Ferry and Roger Reeves on The Underworld in Poetry. Thanks to all of you, and we'll see you next time.